we can live much more deeply connected lives, but we have to figure out how to do it. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Andy Couturier, who spent four years studying sustainable living in rural Japan. There, he worked with local environments, wrote for the Japan Times, and studied how Japanese aesthetics can help us develop new forms of writing. Andy has also hitchhiked across the Sahara Desert, been a researcher for Greenpeace, built his own house with hand tools, and taught intuitive writing for more than two decades. He's a student of many different Asian philosophical systems and is fluent in Japanese. His book is The Abundance of Less, Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan. This episode is brought to you by Health IQ. To see if you qualify and get your free health quote, go to healthiq.com wolf or mention the promo code wolf when you talk to a Health IQ agent. And here's the interview with Andy Couturier. Hi, Andy. Welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Really glad to be here. I'm happy to have you on. Your book is called The Abundance of Less, Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan. And it's a fascinating book about a group of people who have chosen a different way to live. And I think there's a lot of lessons for all of us in it. And we'll get to that in a minute. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. Yeah. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. He looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, it's a very interesting parable, and I think it's very true in terms of our consciousness. Um, but also, I'm, I'm interested in this idea of always at battle. Um, and, you know, we can't fail to notice that there's a male, a uh, young male and an older male. And I thought about the people that I wrote about in The Abundance of Lessons. and I thought, wow, they don't really seem to be in this state of struggle. Um, it doesn't seem to be going on for them. And yet at the same time, they've made very conscious choices to move away from consumerism and uh, greed is one of the key words you use there. And I thought it's a powerful word, but it's also a 
tricky word. It's an obvious thing when you say, think about someone taking from a child or taking something from a poor person uh, or a landlord raising rent or someone maximizing the return on investment on their stock portfolio. But one of the people I wrote about said is, he said um, to a farmer, he said, don't be greedy with the soil. Realize what its actual fertility is, and then you'll have a stable harvest from year to year. And so for me, I realized that even as an organic gardener that grows uh, some of my own food, that indeed I had had that greed with the soil. What? How can I maximize my production? So to me, on some level, there's the things we feed consciously are the sort of easy stuff. It's the things that we, the bad wolf in that language that you use, that we uh, feed subliminally without even noticing it. That's what's sort of most important, I think, because I think a lot of those things are the things that are, are driving us. And, um, and by meeting these people, uh, at first I thought they were just vindicating my own pre-held beliefs. But in fact, um, they were they challenged me on many levels so that I actually had to see where I was being, just for example, greedy without even knowing it. That's a great start and a great way to kick things off. Why don't you tell listeners a little bit about the premise or the setup of the book, and then we can get more specific from there. Sure. Well, um, I was living in rural Japan. Um, I've always loved the countryside in uh, the early 90s, and just by chance doing some environmental activism, I met some people, originally one woman who was an uh, anti-nuclear activist um, back in 1990, so 20 or more years before Fukushima, and uh, she was very forthright, and she was not afraid of challenging me, and we became great friends, and she invited us, uh, my partner Cynthia and I, up to her homestead in the mountains. and. The funny thing is, is we were in Japan earning money because what we wanted to do is, is to earn enough money to buy some land in uh, Northern California when we came back to the States and grow our own food and build our own house. We had already had that idea, and but we had no idea that anyone was doing that in Japan. And when we went up there, not only was it just physically so beautiful, these terraced rice paddies where people have planted vegetables and flowers and fruit trees, uh, and the old farmhouses dotting the hillside and the cedar forests, and many of the um, Atsuko, as the woman her, and her friends, were living in these old farmhouses, many hundreds of years old, and uh, for almost no rent, I realized that these people were not just my cliche idea back to the landers, but they were living this profoundly connected life. And it wasn't just um, sort of that hippie ideal of um, grow your own food, but that it was connected in so many different ways to uh, traditional Japan, but also very intriguingly to their living overseas uh, in India and Nepal and sometimes Tibet and China, connecting in with those wellsprings of Buddhist and Hindu thought and bringing them to actuality in their day-to-day lives. And so I thought, as my Japanese got better and better, as speaking to them in Japanese, I realized these were very profound thinkers and that they figured out some things that I think could help a lot of people in the West who are suffering and can't figure their way out. And so that started me feeling that it was important to write a book about them so that other people who don't have the luxury or privilege to live overseas or speak Japanese could meet them and, and learn their, I don't want to call them secrets, learn, learn these 
in some ways, obvious pieces of wisdom that we've um, gotten so alienated from just from the way we live every day. Yep, right in the title, you, you kind of refer to them as lessons, and I think that's an interesting way to look at them. So one of the things that you mention about these people is that, as one of the defining characteristics, is that they do not use money to entertain themselves. Talk to me a little bit about their lifestyles, and what does entertainment mean to them? It's very different in a lot of ways than what we would think of as entertainment. That's a great question, and um, I think that's a, a key point, is that they uh, are not necessarily going, you know, obviously if you live in New York, you can go to the Kennedy Center and see opera or um, even if you're connected to the internet, you can stream Netflix. And it's not that nobody does that and, you know, I don't do that or that that's necessarily a bad thing. But in many ways, um, whether it's the drama of growing your own food and uh, or um, just the connection with the natural world, or um, in many cases, is simply getting books out of the library and reading them. It's not so much about pushing play, whatever that is, pushing the button on the remote and and having um, you know an industrialized culture deliver you something that makes you laugh or cry or um, distract you. Uh, that actually um, a lot of the ways of thinking that we have that are unsustainable are based in industrialized production methods that we buy into because of just the way we thought we think and that we all have grown up in such a world of mechanical reproduction of objects that we just purchase. So in terms of their way of life, I do actually prefer the word way of life to lifestyle because lifestyle style sounds a little bit more like a, a fashion, <laughs> but either word you use, uh, their way of life is slow. It's humble. Uh, it's, peaceful. Uh, it's connected to their community. It's um, connected to their own time for contemplation. I would say that's the key word, is, is that they're not suffering time poverty, which is a term uh, I read somewhere. Time poverty is when you just have no time for anything anymore because you're so rushed. These are people who have this um, rich amount of time for contemplation or for making their own art or for spending time with their kids. And that's true even of the dads, uh, which if you know anything about Japan, many times uh, dads may only see their kids on Sundays uh, or Sunday afternoons, or they may be living in a different city. And and the chance to really connect with their children is it's not really entertainment either. It's It's just all life is connected. It's not separated into work and play. I mean, there's more to say about their way of life, but I don't want to make the answer too long. There's a quote that you give from Nakamura. Did I say his name right? That's correct, yes. He says, if you have time, many things are enjoyable, which is just a fascinating idea. And you talk about how in your own life, when you're rushing around and everything is, is so hectic, you know, you sort of see the true source of your misery. Yeah. And it's this idea of that a lot of things are unpleasant for us because we view them as we've got to get them out of the way to get to the next thing and the next thing. Yeah. And what it looks like a lot of the people that you were talking with are doing is they don't have so many things to do. So they are able to spend more time on the basic things that we do to stay alive and they garner a great deal of enjoyment and satisfaction out of doing those things. That is, in a way, not entertainment, but it's a, it's a deeply satisfying part of their life 
and what they consider to be important. Fantastic way of saying it. I don't think I could even improve on that at all. I guess I would just go from there. So, well, if that sounds great, how do we get there? And um, I think we, particularly now with the internet culture, we're used to these five quick hacks to a more sustainable life or, you know, better uh, inner peace. And uh, well, those things are valuable on another level, really, it's not just about, you know, making a, a little tweak here and there, putting solar panels on the house or driving a more efficient car, changing light bulbs out, um, that it's about really reorienting ourselves towards consumerism. And if we're rushed, it's very difficult to do. If we're constantly busy, everyone says, oh, the holidays are crazy, or this is crazy, or my schedule is crazy, as if someone did that to them. And certainly, uh, there are people all over the world who don't have the options that um, many people in the industrialized West have. But um, I think a lot of it is we have all these options, yet we still don't realize that we're uh, chasing after that shimmer of, like, all my life needs to be enjoyable and I need to have it uh, comfortable at all times. And in fact, we can live uh, much more deeply connected lives. But we have to figure out how to do it. And I use the word figure, the term figure out, because sometimes it's really just about thinking our way out. And to do that, we need to make time. So I always recommend to people when they ask me, how do you do this? Is to really take some time out of your, um, your life, even if you can do a, a whole day or a three-day retreat where you really think about how you let your life get set up or the choices you've made and how that rush has brought you to a place of constant sense of lack of time and I really need, I really need, I really need, and and then trying to fill that with convenient devices that will give you back your time. When in fact, as, as Asha Amemia, one of the people in the book said, she said, convenience just speeds you up. And that was one of those moments for me when I realized that it was actually my subliminal belief that all I needed to do was get something, you know, design the system better, and then I would be happier or have more time. And in fact, it's the opposite that I'm using all these devices just to cram more into my days. Hey friends, easy does it before you hit the fast forward button. Our sponsor this week is Health IQ. And Health IQ is a company that rewards you for being healthy. So life insurance, who wants to talk about life insurance, right? You fall into one of two camps. Either you've got it or you don't and you think you should. I suppose there's some of you who don't and think you shouldn't, but whatevs, as the kids like to say these days. If you've got it, Health IQ can save you up to 30% on your insurance by just being healthy. If you're a vegetarian, if you exercise, if you're health conscious, if you're health knowledgeable, you can save up to 30% with them because they are going to take those things into consideration and other insurance companies are not. If you fall into that second category of you don't have life insurance, then this is a great time to look into it. 
even if you've been denied before for certain conditions, if you're able to show that you are healthy in other ways, Health IQ is able to get insurance in cases where other companies cannot. So, for example, certain mental conditions might be offset by the fact that you're healthy. So this is definitely worth checking out. Again, if you've got it, you can save money with this. If you don't, check this out. Life insurance is important. There's a lot of peace of mind behind it. So go to healthiq.com slash wolf for your free quote today. The people are wonderful. As I mentioned in an earlier episode, I'm working through getting life insurance with them. And they've been really pleasant and great to work with. So if you live a healthy lifestyle, let's get you rewarded for that. Go to healthiq.com slash wolf. HelloFresh is our sponsor today. And HelloFresh is a meal delivery kit service that does the shopping, the planning, and it delivers your favorite step-by-step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy couple things about HelloFresh that I love. It's very convenient. You can choose your delivery day when it works best for you. You can pause the account when you're out of town, which is very helpful for me because I travel a lot. They've got a huge selection of different things. They've got three plans, classic, veggie, and family. I love the veggie one. It's great. It makes it easy to cook delicious meals for under $10 a meal. It saves with meal planning and grocery time, and it takes about 30 minutes total for most of their recipes. Lots of them are one-pot recipes to make it really, really fast. And then the other thing is you feel confident when cooking HelloFresh. My girlfriend is an outstanding cook, so I'm not really in her league, but when I do HelloFresh, I am. I make great dinners that are as good, I gotta be careful with this, they're as good as she makes. And so what I made most recently was butternut squash annulati. And if you don't know what that last word means, I didn't either, but it's a kind of ravioli and it was delicious. So for $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, visit hellofresh.com and enter promo code FEED30. Again, that's hellofresh.com FEED30. 30 is the promo code, and you get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh. And here's the rest of the interview with Andy Couturier. There's a lot of circling around that theme of time in the book. I'd say it's one of the big ones of of not trading things for time. That's one that Atsuko? Mm-hmm, Atsuko, yeah. She says most people have directed their attention towards having things more than time, and that's why they are always running. So... One of the things that you mention in the book, and I think it it gets at the heart of what you were just saying a minute ago about, well, is this just a small tweak here or there? What is this? You were doing an interview with somebody else, and they they referred to the people in your book as the Olympic athletes of simplicity. And when you read your book, what those people are doing is very, I don't know if I want to use the word extreme, but it is a far cry from the way most of us in the West live our lives. It's a pretty big distance between our life today and their life. And I'm interested in your ideas on maybe it's not a small tweak, but what are the ways that we make meaningful strides in that direction, knowing that most of us aren't going to necessarily go from the current life we live today towards living in the country, growing our own food and making our own furniture or whatever, whatever it might be. So I'm always interested in, you know, I talk a lot on the show about the middle way about, you know, one extreme versus the other extreme. And 
I'm just curious about how do we take meaningful steps in that direction? So one of them is time. Are there other things that you recommend or think of? I'm just, I'm sort of wondering about this whole level because the distance seems so great. Yeah. And, and I want to say that I don't live the way that they do, but I have over the time that I've met them and the first sentence of this book was written 27 years ago, um, moved more and more in that direction, you know, less media consumption or more time rereading a particular book or listening to the recording of a poem uh, again and again and getting uh, deeper into the experience of what that is. And yet at the same time, you know, if they were to look at, say, the Nepali villagers that they lived with in the Himalayas, some of them lived um, for a couple of years or more in their youth in these um, rural places, they might feel like, well, there's a really huge distance between that way of life and the way I'm living now with a car, for example, or buying some of my food at the grocery store. So um, I think the real answer is it's not for me to say, okay, this is the, the way to do it. I think, and I can give some pointers, but I want to start before I do that, saying that this is a the modern conundrum of credible resource use, um, the suffering that that causes to the planet, to people, um, say, in a sweatshop in China, you know, it's very real. We have to, I feel, we really have to think our way out of it, both as a culture and in terms of our laws, but also just individually. How do we stop participating in things that we don't uh, believe in? And, and maybe maybe there is a larger change um, that people will feel motivated to make. And um, certainly a number of people who've read my book have written to me and they said, you know, it really changed my life. I decided to leave the corporate grind and live a lot simpler and live in a smaller house and, and I'm so much happier and thank you for writing the book. So I do want to say that it is possible to make large changes, but sometimes it's easier just to get started. Um, I would say just to think about in what ways you are creating, as I said in the book, misery for yourself or the way I'm creating misery for myself, rushing through things and think, is there another way to do this? Do I need to be in touch with everybody who writes me by email within an hour, within a day? Am I a wrong person if I'm not dressed in the finest duds? I mean, there's a lot of ways in which we've been conned into consuming a lot, rushing a lot and missing a lot of what's happening in our lives. And I think a lot of times when people have, for example, a health crisis or a brush with death, they wake up to that. And um, maybe we don't need to have a brush with death to wake up to, like, how are we living? Do we want to spend more time with ourselves? Uh, do we want to spend more time with our family? You know, Do we have lunch with a friend for 45 minutes in the middle of a hectic work week? And how did that happen? You know, when we really want to spend three or four hours with a friend and really hear about their heartaches and and their joys and what they've learned and where their growth points are. So simplify, simplify, simplify. I now live in a studio apartment with my partner um, and the dog, and I have my quasi office for writing and teaching writing here. And we used to live in a one bedroom and before that a two bedroom. And each step has actually made me much happier. It's less to deal with. Um, when I stopped traveling so much, I got to know my own town better. When I 
decided that really one of my priorities is having long conversations with friends. I found the friends who also wanted that. And because I was doing that, I wasn't out there, um, you know, filling my shopping basket in order to uh, staunch this horrible sense of alienation that I think we all sometimes feel. That's a great answer. There's a couple themes, I think, also that we can pull out from the book that are in the vein of what we're talking about. And one of them is what you mentioned partway through the last answer, which was rereading certain things, focusing on a poem. You talk in the book about a musician who has played the same seven songs on his, I'm going to call it a flute. That's not the right thing, but you can give us... Flute is right. It's a large bamboo flute. Okay you know, continued to play those same seven songs. So there's a idea of going deeper into things in this way of life. And you could talk about that from the perspective of a book, a poem, a piece of music, or a lot of the people are using their hands to make something. And they're, they're doing that in a very methodical and thoughtful way. It's another way of going deeper into something than what a lot of us do. And so that points me as another direction that we could all look at to, to simplify our lives and to deepen our lives is to do you know those kind of things that you just mentioned. I was visiting my mother in Washington, D.C. this uh, past summer. And I went to uh, the Folk Arts Festival, and I thought I would see, you know, wood carving and uh, fiddle playing. But turned out that the focus was on circus arts. And there was, like, little workshops on juggling and um, clowning and things like that. And the person there was talking about the difference between... They did some research on people who were circus arts performers or people who were just studying it and spent, you know, many, many hours of their days doing that versus um, what's known as gamers, people who spend a lot of time in front of a computer screen. And, and I, there's nothing in the book that judges people for their choices. So I don't want this um, answer to your question to be uh, judgmental of people who uh, do gaming. But just if you think about, say, juggling, and they talked about, you know, kids who do each of those and what their lives are like, and what their brains are like, and what their satisfaction is like, and as you might expect, doing things with your own hands. And uh, juggling is, turns out to be a lot more satisfying. But the point I want to make is, is like, say you decided, wow, I really have always been so fascinated by juggling, I want to learn how to do it. And you spend a lot of time doing that, again, you're not, besides buying your juggling balls, you're not spending a lot of money on it. Um, and you're interacting with your own body and your own self, and you're in many ways uh, deepening into that practice, and you're not rushing somewhere else to get the next thing to stop you from looking at the things that you don't want to look at. So I would say that whatever it is that whoever's listening to this thinks about, like, you know, I really love doing this or that, think about, like, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could spend a lot more time doing that? It could be knitting or crocheting. It could be drawing. It could be um, interviewing people as you do, um, writing. Many of my writing students, you know, they get such satisfaction. And then the answer might come, well, I need to make a lot of money for my rent or, you know, I have these um, obligations. And certain obligations, you know, one's chosen to have children and, um that can't be just easily changed, nor would one want them to be. But at the same time, um, and I should bring up children later, but let's, I want to finish this point. Um, there's a way that we can 
can deepen into fewer things, and it may be that we need to live in a cheaper place in order to do that, or we may need to have less gadgets and appliances, or um, car payments are too high, you know, drive a used car or use a bicycle, all these different ways that we can make time for what we really care about. And in the case of people who have kids, you know, yeah, some of the people in the book, they couldn't send their kids to the most expensive universities in Japan. Yet at the same time, those kids, and I saw them grow up and I interviewed some of the kids in the book, boy, were they well-rounded and boy, were they smart and connected in ways that a lot of the kids I was teaching who were on the cram school, you know, famous university track that you hear about so much in Japan, just were not. And in many ways, they ended up more satisfied as young adults in their lives. And, you know, they were, they were still able to do what they wanted to do. So even with kids, I think that there's no requirement that you have to generate a huge amount of money. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best-kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest-growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. If you're enjoying this conversation, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We are nearing the end of it. Wish you could keep listening once the episode ends? Well, I've got some good news, too. You can. The interview continues over at oneufeed.net slash support. There, if you pledge at the $10 level, you'll get access to this additional exclusive content as well as many other bonus conversations that have been recorded with our guests. We really need and appreciate your support. So we hope you'll head over to oneufeed.net slash support and pledge to access this additional weekly content. And now, back to the interview. You mentioned before this is not a moralizing or a, a judgmental thing. And, and when I talk about ways that we can embody some of what these people in Japan are doing, it's not from a sense of guilt or that we're living the wrong way. Although looking at the environment can be a big piece of it. But one of the things you said early on in the book that really struck me was that they were living profoundly satisfied lives. And I think that's the piece 
that I circle back to when I look at these things and I look at what those lessons are, it's that, you know, if you look at Western culture, more and more people would say it's not a profoundly satisfying way of life. And yet these folks who have, by the standards we would consider almost nothing, now they've made that that choice, are living, and I think the way you say it, profoundly satisfied lives is is so important. And so I wanted to echo what you were saying about a, a moralism or a judgmentalism or you should do this. And it's, you know, really more from if we're, if we're looking at our lives today and go, well, this, it's not as satisfying as I want. These are some approaches that can help. And yeah. to your point also that you made earlier, we are facing an ecological crisis and our consumerist economy is definitely part of that. Absolutely. And they have, I'm not, um, you know, sometimes you might write something and you think back later, well, maybe I overstated that, or I'm not sure that was true. Or when I came back and met that person, they it wasn't so much the case. Well, that has not been the case. Uh, some of these people, as I said, I've known over a quarter of a century. And um, as they've grown older, as their kids have grown up, as uh, changes have happened, and even the heartbreak of the Fukushima nuclear accident, or uh, I don't even know if we can call it an accident, but um, all of those things, they're still living profoundly satisfied lives. So back to the question of like, well, we're not really going to make huge changes in our lives. It's like, well, someone said, you could live a profoundly satisfied life. Many of us might be really willing to make huge changes. And I don't think it's necessary, depending upon where you're at, um, but maybe, maybe, you know, if your life is totally crammed full of things that you hate doing and you're doing it in order to make money, in order to buy something, may, it may indeed be a huge change. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, if you make small changes along the way, wherever you're at, that you can't actually get more and more of your life to be satisfying. And it's, you know, my writing students sometimes say to me, oh, I need to get disciplined to write my book. And that's never my approach, uh, because it's sort of a punishing approach. Um, I say no one needs to discipline themselves to eat chocolate, uh, by which I mean it's like if you find a way of living, you know, if you're enjoying your writing, if you're really enjoying the process, you just want to do it more. And in the same way, if you really are uh, watching the way a broccoli plant grows and kind of trying to figure out how to keep it nourished and free of bugs and, you know, and you're touching the soil and digging in it, it's just a great thing to do. Um, you know, you are actually living that satisfaction in that moment and you'll probably want to do it more and more. Um, but I do think at the same time, it's a tricky thing about the moralizing thing. If the world middle class, whether that's in India or China or Europe or the United States uh, or Australia, is destroying the earth. And I think an argument can be made that it's not actually, in terms of consumption, I mean, there's a lot of problem with the very rich and the elites, um, but there's only so many Maseratis they can drive. There's not that many of them. It's really, in some sense, uh, it's us and uh, the way we live. We might, you know, really, when we get a sobering look at, you know, the loss of of um, elephants and rhinos and and polar bears, like, wow, is it really that important to fly across the Atlantic five times or even more than once or twice in your life? I mean, is it really that important? So I think we can make changes, and maybe it is. Um, it's it's moving towards satisfaction without blaming yourself because. 
the more we strengthen that part of our brain, back to the one you feed, where we're doing self-blame, where does that leak out into? Is like, oh, I can't handle it. I need another drink or I need to, you know, get away from it all and, um, you know, consume things in order to get away from our own negative self-talk or negative self-image. Yep, exactly. The other thing that several of the people in the book mention, they say that it, this is not a return to the past. Explain what they mean by that. Well, that was a moment for me. So, you know, you come up to someone's house and you see that they're cooking with wood, for example, on this old style wood stove and they're living in an old house and um, they're growing their own food and you think, oh, yes, this is pre-industrial civilization and here they are living in it. It's not even a reenactment for a theme park. They're really living this way. I thought, wow, you know, you're living this way of life of the past. And they said, no, we're not. And I was confused at first, but Atsuko um, Watanabe, the woman who I first met, who introduced me to many of the people, said, I'm just a woman living a simple life in the mountains. And everything I do, I do it because it seems like that's the best way to do it. And that's the best way to use this life that I've been given and to honor it. And to, um, I'm not necessarily seeking after the biggest amount of pleasure or biggest amount of comfort. So, for example, in her case, she lives in a village that has uh, a lot of um, forest and there's lumber mills and they just throw away all of this scrap lumber. And Atsuko and her husband, Gufu, just didn't want to see it go to waste. So they said, well, we'll take it. And so um, they use that to cook their food and they find it fascinating to cook uh, with fire. It's more difficult than just turning on a gas stove. Um, and yet there's a pleasure in it and it seems it's fascinating to look at a fire and to understand fire. And so on many, many levels, people are choosing what they want to do. Uh, another example is Mr. Nakamura, who you also mentioned, he's a woodblock carver. And um, his feeling is this, he wants to build his sensitivity his awareness uh, of all the things in the life world, his sensitivity to his own life, um, not just because it's pleasurable, but also because he feels, it, he calls it the, his greatest safety net, is, you know, whenever you get into a deep trouble, whether that's you're sick or maybe your end of your life, probably the best way out is having a heightened and well-developed sensitivity. And so for him making things with his own hands or trying to think his way out of problems instead of purchase products um, out of his problems is a way to build that sensitivity and that, that pleasure in his life. So, you know, that's why you see travel posters always have nature there. It's this connection with nature that we want to have. Um, and even when there's pictures of cities, it's often, you know, say a beautiful old building, something that's made by hand. I think there's something that gives us a lot of pleasure um, and enjoyment just looking at it, just touching it. just. And if you learn how to make something yourself, there's uh, a form of satisfaction that just can't be gotten any other way. I'm giving you a long answer here, but maybe one more example. Um, my partner and I are not carpenters, uh, but we really wanted to have the experience of building our own house. And when we did return to California, we bought a piece of land that didn't have anything else on it. And we took a few carpentry classes and we did um, everything with hand tools. And I'm not saying that to brag, but just to point out that it was a lot slower, um, but that the connection I had to the 
wood and to learning how, you know, I made a lot of mistakes and bent nails and there was frustration. But now when I'm in that cabin and I hear the rain on the roof and I feel protected and warm and the fire going in the fireplace, that kind of satisfaction is just so different than turning on a thermostat or rent or sending in a, a check to a landlord. Um, so back to your question of, is it a life of the past or is it a life of the future? And I think that it probably has to be a life of the future because um, we know if our current way of living is unsustainable that we have to find something that humans can do for hundreds of years and continue doing it. Yep. That's a great story. I love how you talk about the satisfaction you get from doing things yourself. And as someone who, by and large, tries to avoid doing anything uh, for himself, like me, I mean, I'm, I just generally tend to take things that are more manual and outsource those. Um, it's a profound way of looking at things differently. And as I've done more of that, as I've gotten older, as I've tried to re-engage more, I've realized the satisfaction that that is in that. So, and and the way you write about that in the book is lovely. So, we are at the end of our time. The book is called The Abundance of Less: Lessons in Simple Living from Rural Japan. I recommend it. There's lots of fascinating people in it. It's a really eye-opening look at a very different way of life. And so, Andy, thank you for taking the time to come on. It's such a pleasure. You're a fine interviewer, and I really love what you're doing. Well, thank you so much. We'll talk again. Bye-bye now. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show.